Andrew Womack Ministries presents part 10 of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. We pray that the Word of God will come alive in your heart as you listen. This is tape number 117 in our Life for Today Bible Commentary series. And on this tape, I'm continuing the teaching through the book of Ephesians. We're now in Ephesians chapter 5. We will begin with verse 26, and this is found on page 1135 of the printed material. In our last tape, of course, we were teaching through the book of Ephesians. We were we ended with Ephesians 5.25, and actually this is a series of things that the Apostle Paul was saying about marriage that began all the way back in verse 21. I've already covered quite a bit of that material. We're continuing here in the 26th verse, so to get the full impact, the context, you need to refresh your memory about the things that I've previously said. We, uh, In the 25th verse, just the very last things I said on tape number 116, was talking about Christ loving the church and that husbands are supposed to love their wives in exactly the same way. So the first thing that I said about that is that God commended his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, Romans 5, 8. So the first characteristic about God's kind of love is that it's undeserved and it's given before there is any virtue or anything that warrants it. A person in the marriage relationship who is saying, well, I would love them if they were worth loving is totally missing the whole spirit of what Jesus did and what Paul is instructing us to do here. This love should be unconditional and it should be offered based on nothing but your choice to do so, not any virtue or something that would occasion it. It's not like you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. You love me, I'll love you. You act lovely, and I'll love you. No, the love should come unsolicited, undeserved. It's a choice. And then the Lord also took our blame. He took our punishment. He covered us on and on. We've already talked about all that. In the 26th verse, it said, this is Ephesians 5:26. It says, the reason he did this, gave himself for it, is that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. And, of course, this is talking about the word of God. Jesus is called the word of God in John chapter 1. The word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Also, it says in John chapter 15, it, uh, he was talking about this illustration of Jesus being the vine and us being the branches, and it says every branch that doesn't produce, he purges it, that it may bring forth more fruit. And then in the next verse, it says, Now you are clean through the word that I have spoken unto you. The word clean and the word purge there come from the exact same thing. They, they're interchangeable. And the way he purges us or cleanses us is through the word. So that's what this is talking about. He cleanses and washes us with his word. The application of this to marriage is that one of the ways that we cleanse our mates, specifically this is talking about the husband to the wife, but I believe it would go the other direction also, is by the words that we speak. You know, the words that you speak over your mate, this is a generalization, but as a whole, basically, what you say about your mate tends to be a self-fulfilling prophecy. You know, it's the same thing. I think you can see this even clearer in children, that if you tell children that they're nothing, that they are no good, that they'll never amount to anything, it forms that impression, that value on the inside of them, and they tend to live up to that, regardless of how much they resist it in some area of, in some time of weakness and temptation. 
they'll just give in and say, well, after all, I'm no good. I never, I was always told I'd never amount to anything. And it really becomes a driving force in their life. Words have power. The scripture says it this way over in the 18th chapter of the book of Proverbs. It says, death and life are in the power of the tongue, and they that love it shall eat the fruit thereof. Your words have the power of life or death in it. And I think that many times we don't really think about this. And so we wind up criticizing our mate and saying things about them that we really don't want. Sometimes we even say it in jest. I know that one time on a trip that I took, this is back when I was just a teenager, and I took a trip to Europe with my mother, and we were on a Christian group, and we toured Europe. There was one man there that just made fun of his wife constantly, and it was jokes. He was just a jokester. He lived to joke. You know, the wife had lived with this for 25, 30 years, and she took it gracefully. But after being with them for three weeks on this trip, I mean, you know, if you were just out somewhere at a restaurant and saw this happen, you might just think it was in good humor and things like that. But after being with them for three weeks, you know, day and night, seeing them when they're tired and irritable and all kinds of things, it really did get to the wife, and it did not bless her. I became friends with her. I got to talk to her. And I tell you, she didn't say anything about it. But it was a pressure. And the things that he said caused resentment. And, you know, I don't know the situation well enough to know what the end result of it was. But it was negative. And he may have thought that it was nothing and that it was vain. But that's not what the Bible teaches. It doesn't say life and death and a tremendous amount of things that won't affect anything are in the tongue. No, it just says life and death are in the tongue. And so we need to watch the words. We need to sanctify and cleanse our mate with the words that we speak. You know, if you say about your mate what you really want them to be, if you say that they are a loving person, you know, you don't need to lie about this. You don't need to go to where you're just, you know, saying things that have no reference or basis in reality at all. If your mate really is a depressed, discouraged person, and if they fight it, it doesn't mean that you should say, oh, they're never depressed. That's just totally a lie. But you know what you can do? You can put a positive spin on it, and you can say that, well, they've fought depression, and it's been a problem, but you know what? They are getting on top of it, boy. And if you're talking to your mates, you can say, I believe that you are winning this thing. I believe that you're improving. I mean, take every positive thing that you can see. If there's 99 things wrong and one thing right, sanctify and cleanse them with the word that you speak. Speak the positive about them. Bring out the positive. Help them to remember it. I can guarantee you the devil is helping them to remember the negative. Somebody looks at what I'm saying right here and says, well, now I think this is a little manipulative. And, you know, you may just be getting their hopes up and building something that will never come to pass. I think probably you ought to just let it go. If they come out of it, fine or whatever. Well, I can guarantee you the devil is not letting it go. The devil is manipulating and controlling. He's bringing up every negative thing. He's drawing their attention towards the negative. And you, as the mate, especially the husband, this is one of the duties of the husband, is to sanctify and cleanse the wife. I believe, of course, it applies to the wife, too, that you need to use your tongue, your words, in positive ways, not to tear down, but to build up. You know, I have had a lot of compliments, and I certainly don't do this perfectly, but I have had a lot of compliments about the way that I don't use my wife in negative terms and talk about her and discredit her, and that when I do talk about her, I say things that are positive. And I personally, I mean, it's not something I've worked at real hard, but I just love my wife, and I wouldn't say anything critical of her. 
even though I've seen things in her that weren't perfect. She sees things in me that aren't perfect, but she doesn't go around criticizing me and talking about it. Now, we do kid with each other, but I believe that it is convenient. You know, we've already dealt with that earlier in the fifth chapter of the book of Ephesians. We use humor and jesting in a positive way, but we never use our words to tear down anybody. I wouldn't do that to someone that I love. I just don't do that, and that's what the Lord here is saying. And yet, sad to say, in many marriages, people say things about their mate that they shouldn't say. You would never go up to a stranger or a casual acquaintance and say some of the things to them that you say to your mate, and yet somehow we've developed this attitude that, you know, your family, you talk to them worse, you treat them worse, you let your hair down, you look your sloppiest, you do things that are rude that you'd never do in public, And yet you do that with your family all the time. I believe, if anything, it ought to be the opposite. We ought to esteem our family, especially our mate. And in the area of words, we need to recognize, just as Jesus sanctified and cleansed us with the washing of water by the word, we need to do that to our mate. In the next verse, verse 27, it says that he might present it to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. You know, the Lord here says that he is going to present his bride to him holy and without blemish, without spot, wrinkle, or any such thing. There are some people that envision the church as getting weaker and weaker and frail, and then the Lord coming back and basically rescuing us just totally before the church collapses and uh, the second coming of the Lord just literally saves the church from extinction. And uh, there are some scriptures Jesus said in the 24th chapter of the book of Matthew and in uh, Mark uh, 17, I believe, and 21 other places, he talked about that in the last days there would be a great falling away and that the man of sin could not be revealed until there was this falling away, etc. So I do believe that there is going to be a lot of people departing from the faith. And in 2 Timothy chapter 3, it talks about signs of the times, that things that have been considered normal throughout history will cease to be normal. People will be uh, lovers of their own self, covetous, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, and on and on. So, yes, I agree that there will be a falling away, but I really believe that what's going to happen is it's, it's more like a separation There has always been those who were devoted to God, and then there's been those who are antagonistic to God, and yet they're on basically like extremes. And in between is where the vast majority of people have been, people who recognize the existence of God, may have even given some lip service, but they aren't devoted, they aren't committed. And uh, that vast middle ground is where I believe the majority of people are. Well, I think that what's going to happen in the last days are we're going to see this middle ground disappear. We're going to see people either go completely committed to God or we're going to see them completely go the other direction and become God-haters and agnostic or atheistic, antagonistic towards God. I think that the middle ground's leaving and that we're seeing that happen. We're finding uh, less and less people who just have a moral foundation and a natural goodness and tendency on the inside of them. I mean, you are either born again and God is controlling your life, or people are going the other direction and becoming totally self-serving, which is being controlled by the devil. 
So I think that, yes, there's going to be a falling away, but that doesn't mean that the church is going to become anemic. This scripture is saying that he is going to present it to himself as a glorious church. I don't think it's going to be totally weak. I don't think it's going to be powerless. If you'll remember over in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and when I dealt with those scriptures, the scripture there talks about that the church is going to destroy the last enemy of death, and then shall the end come. I mean, the church is literally going to conquer death. Now, I don't know all the implications of that, but I believe that what it means is that we're going to start walking in our inheritance to the degree that we're going to actually routinely see death overcome. Now, there's a lot of theological things about that, but the point I'm making here is it's not the picture of a weak, defeated church. I believe we're going to be a glorious church. There may be a separation so that a lot of people who are now called the church fall out and that we get a purified group, but the ones that are left are going to be a glorious church. And it goes on to say that they are without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. You know, I thought for a long time that this wrinkle, I just envisioned this talking about clothes, talking about how that all the wrinkles were going to be ironed out. But when I got to looking up this word, it's literally talking about like a wrinkle on the face, a drying up of the skin, folds of skin. It's talking about age. And uh, what it's really talking about, the illustration that's being used right here is about the bride of Christ, how that she's going to be glorious when he presents her to himself as a chaste virgin. And this is talking about that she's not going to be weather-beaten, an old hag just barely lasting. I mean, she's going to be beautiful. And again, I believe that this typifies that the church is not going out with a whimper, but going out in triumph. Now, all that being said... I don't think that we will ever get to a place to where the church is everything in the natural that it needs to be. The reason the church is glorious without spot and wrinkle, etc., is not because of our outward accomplishments and actions, not because every single member of the body of Christ is living the full revelation of Jesus, but rather it's going to be through who we are in the Spirit. The Lord purchased us, and in our spirit we are already blameless and spotless without blemish. And so ultimately, it's the attitude or the view of our bridegroom, Jesus, towards us. It makes us without spot or wrinkle. It's because he, God looks at us through the atonement of his son. That's what makes us clean, not our actions. But the church is going to be presented to the Lord without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. In verse 28, it says, So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. And the Lord here is drawing on this illustration about how Jesus died to present the church to himself, a glorious church without spot or wrinkle. He literally gave up his life and died to make the church glorious. He took a selfless approach to where he wasn't thinking about himself, but he was thinking more about his bride. And he says that's the way that men ought to be with their wife. Instead of thinking about what is best for me and how is this woman going to help me, no, the Lord is instructing us to love our wives the same way that Christ loved the church. And it says to love your wife as you love your own body. You know, there is a difference between loving your wife and loving your own body. The difference is that loving your own self comes naturally. But loving your wife is not natural. And the reason is because all sin, basically, is rooted in selfishness. You know, all sin is selfish. If we were thinking only about God and what would minister unto him, or 
even if you just looked at it on the human plane, if you thought about other people and what was good for them, if you took what is called the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, if you thought about others and what would please them, what would bless this person, what is really good for them? Did you know that you would never steal? You would never lie to a person because basically that's just, I mean, that's terrible. You're taking advantage of them. You're making a fool out of them because they are trusting you. It's like them putting their trust in you and you just stealing from them. You'd never steal. You'd never lie. You'd never abuse people. You'd never neglect people if you thought about other people. Every sin that you can imagine is selfish. Totally. Adultery is totally selfish. If we thought about our mate and what was best for them, we would never violate their trust. If we even thought about the person that you were having an adulterous relationship with, you would never have an adulterous relationship with them because of the damage and the hurt it would do. All you're thinking about at the moment is just yourself. All sin is selfishness. And since we all have sin and have sinned and come short of the glory of God, and we have a tendency towards sin, well then therefore it is not normal to love our wife. It is normal to love ourself. If you're hot, I guarantee you, you go out of your way to cool yourself off. We pay big bucks for air conditioners, cars with air conditioners, etc. And then in the winter, we pay big bucks to warm ourselves, and we pay a lot of money in clothes and things like this to stay warm. I mean, we indulge ourselves. We feed ourselves, and most of us are very well acquainted with how our body dictates to us and controls us in that area. So the point is that, see, we pamper ourselves. We take care of ourselves. Even if you don't like the way you are, if you're overweight and you don't like yourself, you still spend money trying to make yourself look as good as you can. I mean, you may dislike yourself. You may not like some of the things you're doing, and yet you still take care of yourself. The point is we ought to love our mate with as much love as we love ourselves. Now, that's not natural, like I said, and it's really not even humanly possible. To really fulfill this passage of Scripture, we have to enter into relationship with the Lord. We have to have God come and put within us His supernatural love. Human love cannot give more than what people deserve. Human love doesn't operate in real mercy and grace, and human love will never Never turn the cheek when somebody hits you and give to those who are taking from you. That is not humanly possible, and yet that's what Jesus told us to do. So to fulfill this, you really have to have God's love abiding on the inside of you, and you have to let God live through you. As Paul said, it's not me, but it's Christ living in me, Galatians 2.20. So really, this is an amazing statement here. He's telling husbands that they should love their wives as they love their own body. That just is humanly impossible, but it is not impossible to the believer. You can get to a place to where you have God loving other people, specifically your mate through you. It can be done. If it seems impossible unto you, if you say, well, man, how could I ever do that? That's just because you are so used to depending upon yourself. You're self-dependent. You're looking to your own ability to love others. You haven't discovered yet the joy of letting Christ live through you and love others with a supernatural kind of love. If you're born again, it is on the inside of you. You have to draw it out. In verse 29, it says, For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord the church. 
You know, I've got some footnotes written here on the word nourish and cherish, and I'd encourage you to look at that and really study this out. But these are terms used. uh, Normally, we associate this with child training, child raising. Matter of fact, this word cherish here is the word that we get brood from, like a chicken, you know, uh, raises a brood of chicks, broods over the young. I mean, at great expense to themselves, that chicken will sit on that nest and cost itself time, comfort, all kinds of things to protect that egg and to hatch it and to take care of it. This is saying that in the same way, we need to have that kind of an attitude towards our mate. You know, most people are more tolerant towards uh, problems in their children than they are in their wife or in their husband. And yet the Lord here is saying that we should nourish and cherish our wife even as, you know, the Lord nourished and cherished us. But even in the natural, you take the example of the way a parent nourishes and cherishes their child. The Lord is telling us that we need to do that even when there's mistakes. Every parent understands about having to change diapers and some of the things that you have to do that are unpleasant. And yet you nearly, I can truthfully say that I did it without uh, regretting it without any feeling of grief and anger over it. I mean, it. I just knew it was part of the territory. I was doing it as a ministry, as a gift unto my children. Well, did you know that you can do the same thing with your mate? Not physically I'm talking about here, but I'm saying when they mess up, when problems come, you can cover them and you can bless them and minister unto them. That's the attitude that he's talking about right here. In verse 30 it says, For we are members of his body, of his flesh and of his bones. This is talking about that the Lord, in the previous verse, it says that the Lord, you know, cherishes and nourishes the church because we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. The Lord loves us like he loves himself because we are a part of himself. Through the new birth, the Lord has actually incorporated us into his body and he sees us as a part of him. You know, if you had a part of your body that, say, you had damaged it, you'd cut it or something like that, you wrap it up, you protect it, you pray over the thing, you put salve on it or something to help it heal, and even though the thing may look ugly, you know, it might be a wart or something, you do what you can to spruce it up. You may put on gloves to cover it up and put on the best face possible. And yet sometimes with our mates, we look at them and just act like, who are they? Forget them. We need to recognize that that's a part of us. If you don't like what you're seeing, instead of divorcing yourself from it, trying to cut it off, ignore it, criticize it or whatever, we need to do what we can to cover it, to heal it, to see the thing overcome. Treat it as if that is a part of our body because the husband and wife have been made one. In verse 31, it says, For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. Now, this is a quotation from over in Genesis chapter 2. Adam said this about his wife, and basically all it's doing is saying that in the same way as the 30th verse had said that we are members of Christ, of his body, of his flesh, of his bones, we become a part of him. He's saying that the marriage relationship is the same that the husband and wife, too, become one. And he quotes that Old Testament scripture as verification of that. And he's just basically saying that if you recognize this and treated your wife like you would treat yourself and deal with it, that that would would solve most, if not all, problems. Because, again, problems, sin, is all based in selfishness. We get out of self, think about the other person, it stops problems. 
In verse 32, he says, This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. You know, we've applied these scriptures towards marriage, and they do apply, because the very next verse says, Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife, even as himself, and the wife see that she reverence her husband. So, yes, this does apply to marriage. That's what he's saying in this 33rd verse. But the point he's making in verse 32 is that he's not really talking about the physical human marriage relationship. He was using marriage to illustrate how God treats us. Now, the vast majority of times when you take these scriptures, and I've done this myself, it does apply. That next verse makes it clear that this is saying, yes, these things I've said are true about marriage. But the real point of these scriptures are to use physical marriage to illustrate our relationship with God. And very seldom do you hear that done. Very, very seldom. Most times people talk about how God loved us and then say, now you ought to love your wife the same way. But the Lord here was taking a physical, natural thing that people understood about loving your mate and saying that that's the way that God loves us. And that's the point that he's making right here. You could go back through all of these scriptures and reverse it and talk about some things here that we didn't even cover. I would suggest to you that you get the tapes by Don Crow, a tape series that he has. I think it's a four-tape series entitled How to Affair-Proof Your Marriage. And, of course, Don Crow is an associate minister with me for many years, and he's on staff with me, and his tapes are put out through our ministry exactly the same as ours are, so you can contact us and get that. And in this tape series, that's what he does, is take these passages of Scripture, and he teaches the true intent of these Scriptures using the physical things that we see in marriage to illustrate how God really loves us. And I believe that it would be a real blessing to you. And that goes into a lot of detail I just won't take time to get into here. So he's been talking about marriage, starting with Ephesians five twenty-one through 33. Now we go into the sixth chapter, and he begins to start talking about parent-child relationship. You know, as I already said, in the third first three chapters of the book of Ephesians, he talked about great... Uh, positional truths, just talking about how we are in heavenly places with Christ and how all of these things are true about us. And it was kind of theological things that are very, very powerful. I'm not criticizing that at all, but uh, things that were not necessarily applicable to everyday situations readily. You had to study it out. You had to really meditate on it. It's setting down principles, guidelines, etc. Starting in the uh, fourth chapter on through the sixth chapter, he gets into very practical things about churches, how they function, the relationship of the body, how to renew your mind. In the fifth chapter here, he's talked about a lot of real practical things about foolish talking, jesting. So you see all of the practical aspects of the book of Ephesians here in these last three chapters. And so in the fifth chapter here, he talked about husband and wife relationship. Now he's coming down to parent-child. I mean, this is his nitty-gritty as you can get. This is rubber meets the road. This is everyday living. Sometimes you see people that don't match the two. There are some people that are just into theological discussions, and they like to talk about things. They can discuss it forever. They know a lot of word, but they all do it in theory, and they have no practical application. I mean, they may discuss, you know, God is love and talk about it from every angle and then go right out of there and get mad at somebody and treat them like the devil and never make the connection. There's no practical application. 
Well, Paul is putting both of them here in this book to the Ephesians. And I mean, when you start talking about husband and wife, parent and child, if you can deal and get your Christianity working in those areas, then you are making major progress. I really believe that lots of times people come to church and hear things that are truths and that help them. But if they don't know how to apply those things in their home, they go home and they lose it all in just an hour or two hours. Or sometimes it's not even that long. Sometimes it's in the car on the way home or the way to church. They just don't have any practical application of the Word of God in their life. And so Paul here is dealing with these things. Chapter 6, verse 1, he says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And I dealt with quite a bit of things in the fifth chapter when I was talking about husbands, you know, loving their wives and the wives reverencing their husband. I didn't mention that in this last verse of the fifth chapter, but I already dealt with that earlier in the fifth chapter about reverence and love. And specifically, we talked about obedience and submission, the difference between the two. The same thing applies here with children. Now, this passage even tells the children not only to submit, but to obey your parents, but there still is a qualification on it. It says, in the Lord. And I think that we could spend a lot more time on this, but it ought to be obvious that this is not telling children that they have to do anything that their parents tell them to do, even if it is in direct opposition to the Word of God. Like, say, for instance, I've actually heard stories about parents that told their children to go out and shoplift and steal. They use their children for that. I've heard stories of children, you know, who uh, got dope and sold dope and did these kind of things. If a child knows about that, they do not have to obey ungodliness. This did not say, children, obey your parents, period. Even if it had, I believe that it would have to be balanced out with other scriptures where we are never commanded to do any type of sin ever under any circumstances. But it goes beyond that. It says it right here. Obey your parents in the Lord. So this is talking about that, yes, you should obey your parents, but in the Lord. We never obey anybody to the degree that we get out of obedience to God. Now, all of that being said, and I believe that that's true, this needs to be balanced. If there is a young person listening to this and saying, well, boy, that's it. My parents aren't saved, and I'm not going to obey them anymore because they aren't in the Lord. Well, there's a lot of things that parents could tell, you know, unsaved parents could tell a believing child to do that even though they aren't Christians, the instructions would be consistent with what the Lord would want you to do. For instance, if they tell you to come in at, say, 11 o'clock and you want to stay out till 1 o'clock, there is no scripture that they are violating. It may not suit you, it may not please you, but you don't have the scriptural foundation to be able to go out and just say, forget you, I'm going to do what I want to. If they tell you, no, you cannot date this person, or no, you cannot use the car, you know, there is no scriptural foundation that says that you have the right to use the car at any time, and nobody can tell you to do anything differently. No, I believe that you defer. Even if their judgment is wrong, you still defer to them. Just like Jesus, when he was in the temple at 12 years of age, he was doing nothing wrong. He was doing what his father called him to do. And when Joseph and Mary found him and countered him on this, he says, why were you looking for me anywhere else? Don't you know that I have to be about my father's business? He would have been 
just, righteous, if you looked at it only from the standpoint of what is right and wrong, he was right to be there ministering to these people, asking them questions, growing and beginning what God sent him here to do. But the scripture says that he went home and submitted himself unto his parents. You know, he didn't have to do that in one sense, but because of this scripture and the heart of God, yes, he did have to do it. Because it wasn't ungodly what they were telling him to do, to come home with them. They had a responsibility to take care of him, to provide for him, to watch out for him. He would have frustrated their, that ability. It would have built animosity. And so certainly he, he did the right thing. And there are things that you may not like, but that doesn't mean that this scripture is, because it says that it's in the Lord that you obey them, that doesn't mean that this scripture is telling you that you can just do whatever you want to. But if there's something, if, for instance, they tell you that you could never go to church again, I'll never let you go to church. Well, I believe that you do have a right to go to church. The scripture says, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together. And I believe that as much as possible, I would probably still go to church. But I'll qualify that by saying that going to every camp out, going to every party where they're just having pizza and there's nothing spiritual about it, that does not fulfill the bill of not forsaking the assembling of yourselves together. You know, you could miss a lot of services. You don't have to be there every time the doors are open to fulfill what the Scripture says about not forsaking the assembling of yourselves together. It didn't say you had to be present every time the body got together. So you need to pray about it. And I really believe that if you had the right attitude, God could work things out. Any forbidding you to go to church or anything like that could be worked out if you keep the right attitude. With most parents, that'll work out. But, again, you don't ever disobey God to obey some person. It doesn't matter if that's children or whatever. So all of this being said, there are qualifications, there are limits on this, but within those godly limits, children are to obey their parents in the Lord, for this is right. You know, that's an amazing statement. It should never have to be said that way. But today, it is not looked at as being right to obey your parents. You know, I know that my kids, it's amazing. I mean, we tried to bring them up sheltered. We tried to bring them up totally in the Lord to the best of our ability. And yet even their Christian friends at school, they went to Christian school until they were in high school. And even their Christian friends, lots of times, it was just, you were made fun of if you loved your parents, if you respected your parents, if you obeyed your parents. I mean, they made fun of it. It is not typical today to see people obey their parents. Matter of fact, I already referred to this in Second Timothy chapter 3, I believe it's verse 2. It says that one of the signs of the last time is that people will be disobedient to parents. It is a sign of the times. It is something that's happening. That doesn't mean that every young person is like that, but it certainly is typical today. And the scripture here is saying it's just right. It's normal to obey your parents. To any young people listening to this tape, I want to encourage you that instead of setting your standards according to what the world says and letting them dictate to you, you need to go to God's Word. Normal is obeying your parents. Normal is respecting your parents. Rebellion is not normal. It is not right. This is what's right, and that's for children to obey their parents in the Lord. 
In verse 2, he goes on and he says, Honor thy father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise. So he quotes from Exodus chapter 20, and he says this is the first commandment with promise. What that's talking about is that it goes on to say in Exodus 20, it says, Honor your father and mother that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God gives you. In other words, the Lord promised long life to those that honor their parents. So it was the first commandment given given that brought a promise of blessing if it was obeyed. That's what he's talking about. So he quotes from Exodus 20 and says this is the first commandment, Ten Commandment given, that had a promise associated with it. goes on to say in verse 3, "...that it may be well with thee that thou mayest live long on the earth." Just a further paraphrase of that passage over there in Exodus chapter 20. And then in verse 4 it says, And you fathers provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. So the scripture here is telling children how to relate to parents. And then it comes right back and it tells parents how to relate to children. And you know, this is very important. It's a two-way street. It didn't just say, children, obey your parents. That's it. You know, one of the old things that I've heard many times is, you know, a child says, why do I have to do this? Because I'm your parent. Just do it. Well, I think that to a degree there's a truth there, and that is that you don't have to have a complete education every time you tell your children to do something. If you have to explain everything, if you have to convince it, if it has to be debated, that won't work. I learned in the Army that if a commander had to explain to 200 people in his company why he's telling them to move the direction, and if he had to debate it and spend a month discussing it before he got them to move, that they'd all be killed. You just need to teach people that, hey, do it because I said it. So there is a point to that. There is a partial truth. But at the same time, in the Lord, the Scripture doesn't leave it that way. It's not just children obey your parents, but parents We have a responsibility to our children to train them up and to nurture them. So this is what he's talking about. Verse 4, he says, And you fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And, you know, I have meditated on this scripture a lot, and uh, I still feel like that there's more in it than what I have totally gotten out of it. Let me read over to you, I mean, read to you out of Colossians, because in these passages of Scripture, it's parallel. I've already made that point that I I think the book of Colossians and the book of Ephesians are basically saying the same thing, just written at different times to two different groups. And in Colossians chapter 3, verse 20, the Scripture says, "'Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing unto the Lord.'" Then it says in verse 21, Fathers, provoke not your children to anger, lest they be discouraged. Now, see, this is basically the same things being said over here in Ephesians chapter 6. Fathers, provoke not your children to wrath. Over in Colossians 3.21, it says the reason you don't do that is lest they be discouraged. Um, And, you know, some of the things that the Lord has spoken to me about this... um, I really don't have freedom to go into a lot of detail on this because, number one, I haven't totally figured it out. I haven't seen the resolution of all of these problems and stuff, and so I'd be premature on teaching on this. But I really think, you know, I've had problems with my children, even though, man, I've been a believer, and we prayed for our children. The Lord told us their names before they were ever born. They were dedicated to the Lord and 
serving God at young age and stuff, and yet we've had problems. And I've gone back a lot of times and asked, you know, how did we miss it? What have we done? Things that were wrong, etc. Anyway, that's a bigger subject than what I can cover right here. But the Lord has used this passage of Scripture to minister to me about not provoking your children to wrath. You know, I've thought a lot of times, God, why didn't you tell the children not to provoke their fathers to wrath? And uh, I hadn't got a total answer on that. I think one of the reasons he didn't say that is because, number one, the parents are supposed to be the ones that are mature and uh, able to handle things better than the kids. But he told the fathers not to provoke their children to wrath lest they be discouraged. And I really think that there are times, I'm not saying that I'm totally wrong in this area. I don't want to make myself a scapegoat just to, you know, say, oh, that was the problem and go on. I'm praying about it and stuff. But I do believe that there's times that, man, I just flat told my kids, this is it. You do it. I'm the boss. Go on. And I didn't administer things in the love and uh, the compassion maybe that I should have. And I've seen times that I actually discouraged my kids. And, boy, that hurts me to say that. I certainly didn't ever do it intentionally. I never did it uh, out of just selfishness. I mean, I didn't see it. In retrospect, I think that I can see it clearer now, some of the things that I've done. And I encourage parents, specifically fathers, you know, this is given to the fathers not to provoke your children to wrath. I know that between fathers and their children, especially, I believe, a man and his son, there's this thing about, you know, who's the boss, who's in charge. And you see this conflict go on that I don't think you necessarily see between men and women or fathers and daughters because there isn't the same thing. Women aren't built the same way emotionally. They don't have this desire to conquer and to be in charge and to, you know, all of this kind of thing. It's not, I don't think, to the same degree in tendency. But you get a father and son, and eventually this is going to come out. And I think that one of the things that fathers do is just to say, hey, I'm the boss, do it because I said it. You draw the line and basically just dare them to step over it. Well, what that does, it discourages uh, the child. I think that it can be dealt with better. That is a super generalization, but I believe that to some degree that this is what this passage of Scripture is talking about, that fathers need to guard against this. The reason it was spoken to fathers is because I believe there is a greater tendency on the father's part to make an issue out of this and just say, all right, if you don't like it, let's get it on right now. Let's just prove who's boss. You need to guard against that. And it says to bring them up in the nurture and in the admonition of the Lord. Again, I refer you to the footnote here and, and ask you to study this out. But this, again, is it, there's a lot when it's talking about the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. This is talking about that, man, we need to bring them up in the way that God deals with us. In the same way that God is merciful with us. I mean, boy, if the Lord got ticked off at us when we do things, the way that we tend sometimes to do that, if the Lord became hard and harsh with us the way that we tend to do with our own children sometimes, I guarantee you all we would be is just a little pile of ashes, a little grease spot in the road. If God was to vent his anger at us, he doesn't treat us that way. And the Lord here is saying that we need to do the same with our children, to be loving, compassionate with them. Now, there is an abuse to this, too. I have seen some people, 
that just are so sweet to their kids that they never show any authority in their life. They let the kid run the family. I mean, the kid basically does everything. They have to sit down and discuss it and say, now, Johnny, is this the way that we should act? And they're trying to be so loving, and the whole time the kid is just dismembering the cat or tearing the house from one end to the other. Man, there's times to stand up and take your authority. But I'm saying that there's a balance to everything. And I think that that's what this verse is mentioning, that fathers have a tendency sometimes to just come in, crack the whip, and say, do it or else. And the Scripture here is admonishing them to do it the way that God deals with us in compassion, not by any means advocating our authority or responsibility, but just making sure that we do it with compassion. In verse 5, It says, Servants, be obedient to them that are your masters, according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in singleness of your heart, as unto Christ, not with eye service as man-pleasers, but as the servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with good will doing service as to the Lord, and not to man, knowing that whatsoever good thing any man doeth, the same shall he receive of the Lord, whether he be bond or free. Now, there is a lot to say here, but first of all, let me just point out what he did not say here to servants, or the word here actually is slaves. You know what he did not say? He did not give slaves any instruction about how they could get out of slavery. He didn't instruct them on the evils of slavery. He didn't say that this shouldn't be, but it does exist, and you're going to have to live with it. He didn't make any statements like that. Now, I believe that this is significant, and I've mentioned this before. I refer you back to some things in Romans chapter 13 and other places where I've ministered on this. But it is really significant that the Apostle Paul did not use his authority and his influence to break the grip of slavery. That is very significant. Because even though he may not have had the authority in the civil realm to have done that, Paul was probably the greatest authority in the church over the Gentiles. He even had a tremendous input and sway in the uh, Jewish church, but over the Gentiles, he's the one that was used to start most of these churches, the great evangelistic thrust, and Paul was probably unparalleled in authority and respect that was given to him. And if Paul, even if you look at it pessimistically and think that Paul couldn't have outlawed slavery among believers because it was just a practice of the day and he couldn't have turned around the whole social order. If he couldn't have outlawed it, he certainly could have influenced it. He certainly could have said, you know, that to a degree you need to start letting these slaves go. You need to free them. You need to. He could have maybe not have outlawed it, but he could have influenced it. He could have changed it a lot, and he never did that. Paul never used his position to try and affect social change. Now, somebody may disagree with that dramatically. In our society today, there is a big emphasis put on social change being a part of the gospel. Matter of fact, there are some people, I heard this terminology recently, where they call them reconstructionist preachers, or it could have been restoration preachers. But anyway, they were talking about how that they believe that the body of Christ should literally dominate in all areas, even government, that we need to mobilize people, get the right people voted in, take control, legislate morality, make this country what it should be, and literally take over the world for the Lord. That is not the approach that Paul had. 
And there's and the people who believe that they advocate very strong political type things. And don't misunderstand me. I believe that every Christian should vote. I believe that they should be informed. They should participate. I believe that Christians should get involved in their local caucuses and local government and stuff. But do it as an individual, not necessarily as a ministry. I hope everybody understands that. In other words, what I'm saying is a minister who is called to preach the gospel should not focus his effort on mobilizing people for votes, for moral issues, just dealing with things to influence, you know, like a lobbyist in Washington trying to change the political scene. Now, there's a lot of people doing that, and there's a lot of churches advocating it. I don't believe that that is at all what the Lord called us to do. Now, somebody says, are you saying then that we shouldn't take an interest in abortion and in these issues of, you know, moral issues and homosexuality and all no, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that as an individual, yes, you can get involved in that. But a person who is called to preach the gospel should preach the gospel. Every Christian, even though they have like a dual citizenship, they have their citizenship here on the earth, and they are a citizen of heaven, we need to recognize our primary responsibility and our greatest power that we have is to change the hearts of man by exposing them to Jesus and telling them about what Jesus, how he loves them, and how he wants to change them. And if we change the hearts of people, then, as people's hearts get changed, and they begin to respond to the Lord, then their votes will change, and governments will change as a byproduct. I mean, you just look at the way the first century church acted. They did not try and overthrow the government. Of course, some people could say, well, they couldn't. It was a dictatorship. They would have been, it would have been an act of treason, war. They would have been annihilated. Well, they were being annihilated. They were burned at the stake. And yet, instead of forming any type of revolt, instead of fighting back, they turned the other cheek. They literally sang as they were burned to death. They operated in love. They released the power of the gospel. And I mean, I've talked about this before, that as people were thrown to the lions in the Circus Maximus and in the Colosseum in Rome, that people would actually jump out of the grandstands and run out there, face certain death, to accept the God that they saw in these people, the love, the compassion that they had. And ultimately, within just a matter of a couple of hundred years, the whole Roman Empire was brought to their knees. The ones who were the persecutors of the Christians were brought to their knees and actually established Christianity as the official religion of Rome. That probably did more to hurt Christianity than it did to help it. But nonetheless, it shows that they totally turned around because of the power of these people just living the gospel. They never organized revolution. They never organized social change. What they did was touch the hearts of people. I tell you, when you try and get into government and through government just pass laws that make people be a certain way, now, don't misunderstand me. I am not saying that we ought to throw out all morality and all standards and say, hey, let everybody just decide on their own. No, a nation should be founded on godly principles, and you are never going to have everybody agree. Nobody should be free to establish just their own standards. If I want to kill, rape, plunder, it's my free will. No, the government has the right and the responsibility to do that. In the United States, we have been super blessed to have a country that was founded on godly principles, and it's right to fight for those godly principles. But I'm saying that if we put all of our effort into just political things, 
That's the kind of things that causes revolutions, wars, civil wars, etc. If we would put as much energy into preaching the gospel and changing the hearts of people and evangelizing people, you get God on the inside of those people, the Holy Ghost would go to convicting them and showing them what was right. And I guarantee you, our nation would change. We would have godly laws. We would go back to godly standards. We would see things happen as the condition of people's hearts change. But see, this is the fallacy with a democracy. It's the weak link in a democracy. Matter of fact, the founding fathers of our nation, I think it was John Adams, said that this experiment of a democracy is totally unsuited for anything except a moral people. He says if they ever quit being moral people, this democracy will become the worst thing that the world has ever known. And that was quoted by not only, you know, just uh, an ex-president. That was quoted by most of the people that signed the declaration. They realized that they were opening up potentially a can of worms. If the people ever got to where they were not committed to God and godly principles in their heart, they had the ability to turn the nation because that's what a democracy is. The majority rules. The problem has been that the church has not done the job that we should in the United States. We have not influenced the hearts of people the way that we should. And people have gotten away from godly standards. They have not been seeking the Lord. And as a result, it's being reflected in our society. And politics are going the wrong way. And they're doing things that are an abomination to God and to every God-fearing person. They're calling good evil and evil good. And those things are terrible. And yes, I want to change them. But how do we do it? By getting in and grabbing hold of the political wheel and turning it towards God? Well, no, ultimately that may happen. But the real thing that we need to do is the church needs to get back serious once again to sharing the word of God and impacting people with the gospel and changing hearts one by one. And if this nation ever sees a revival of people turning to the Lord and getting right with God, it will change the political system. And actually, that's a quicker, easier answer than trying to get in and legislate and change things through political action groups and and educating the body of Christ on how to vote and all these kind of things. You go out and just change the hearts of all these people. You go take some people who are the ones who are anti-God and against everything and trying to get keep prayer out of schools and trying to further abortion and fetal research and on and on every issue that you want to take. You get those people who are the leaders and that born again, and they will get in and actively turn this thing around, and we could see it change. The reason I got off on all of this is by saying that Paul here gave instructions to the believers who were slaves about how to conduct themselves in a godly manner, but never told them you shouldn't be a slave, although I believe that God never intended that. God didn't make a man to be bought and sold or a woman or a child. That was never God's intent, and yet he didn't go in and try and change the system. What he did was talk to the people and have them change their hearts. And as hearts change, the system changes. And we see things like that. It's amazing how that, see, man always goes for the physical area and forgets the spiritual, the emotional, the the behind-the-scenes things. And yet, in reality, it's the spiritual condition of a person's heart that drives him to the actions that he has. Instead of trying to restrain the actions, change the heart, and the actions will change.
Same thing happens in society. Change the hearts of the people, and societies will change. So Paul here noticeably does not speak against slavery. In effect, I don't believe that it would be correct to say that he sanctions it, but he, by his absence of criticizing it, he condones it. Not in the sense that it's right, that it ought to be something that should be forwarded or uh, continued, but he basically makes it a non-issue. It's just not important. Uh, I've, I've mentioned this before, too, but I've seen people who lived in Romania and different places under conditions that are just totally unacceptable to any person who's ever been free. And I mean persecution, terrible things happening to them. And yet I've seen those people freer, happier, more content than most Christians that I have ever met who live in a free society. And the reason is because in Christ, you know, it says this over in 1 Corinthians 15, that, you know, whosoever is called in the Lord, being a freeman, is actually a slave to Christ, and whoever is a slave in the natural is actually set free through Christ. And the point is that our spiritual condition is so much more important than our physical condition that if a person ever really realized their liberty in Christ, they could be so free, they would have so much joy, so much peace, that even though they were slaves, it's no problem. I mean, God can impact us to that degree. Some people don't understand what I'm saying. You're thinking, that's not true. You'd be miserable if you were a slave. Well, that's not what Paul is saying here. He's telling these servants how to serve their masters. Let's go back through some of this, look at it specifically, and remember this, that when he's using the term slave and masters, servants and masters, that this really isn't applicable to most of the people that are listening to this tape. I believe that the modern-day equivalent of this would be employers and employees. It's the same authority structure, although you may not be a slave. There still is this same principle here, and it would apply directly to that. So he says servants, or you could say employees, be obedient to them that are your masters, employers, according to the flesh, with fear and trembling and singleness of your heart as unto Christ. Now this is amazing. He made a specific statement here about those who are your masters according to the flesh. In other words, that's implying that God is truly your master, but you do have people over you in the natural realm. Every one of us have employers, our managers, our boards, or somebody who's over us who we answer unto. If nothing else, all of us answer to civil authority. We have church authority. There's all kinds of levels of authority. Every one of us have people that we have to answer unto. And he says to do it with fear and trembling. Now, again, this isn't talking about a fear that's terror, dread, some kind of bad thing, but it's talking about respect is what he's talking about, awe and respect. Some people think, well, how could I ever respect the old reprobate that I work for? They're so ungodly and on and on. You don't necessarily have to respect the ungodly things that they do, but you respect that position. It's just like the person who's the president of the United States. At the time that I'm making this tape, which is going to be time-dated, it won't be this way very long, but in 1996, in um, July, when I'm making this tape, uh, Bill Clinton is the president of the United States. Now, there's a lot of things I disagree with this man on. I did not vote for him, and in a lot of ways, I've been embarrassed by things that he's done. I don't make a big issue of that. Again, I'm out to change the hearts of people. I'm just saying this is my own personal opinion. But you know what? I respect that office. 
if I was invited to the White House and if I was to go in to see Bill Clinton, even though that man, there are some things about him I certainly dislike, I could muster up a tremendous amount of respect, reverence, fear, and trembling for the office because there's a position of authority there that needs to be honored. And I don't just come out and blast a person and talk about them. I I would give him much more respect than I would some person who's out on the street doing some of the same things he's doing because I would respect his office, his position. And I think that that's the way employees, employers need to look at things, that we respect the position. You know, in the Soviet Union, I think that the government system that was in the former Soviet Union was incorrect. I don't think that communism is God's best, but but I'll say this, that communism, any form of government, organized government, even dictatorship, is better than anarchy, which is no government. That's what Romans chapter 13 talks about. The powers that be are ordained of God. Not necessarily all of the government systems are the way God wants them to be, but government is ordained of God. And I think that when we saw the Soviet Union break up and there was anarchy, that when you go over to the former Soviet bloc, and I've been over there and talked to those people, many of them liked communism better, not because they liked it, but there was some stability to it. There is security in government, even if it's bad government, is better than no government, where every person just does whatever is right in their own eyes. See, even though you may not be able to respect the exact form of government, you have to respect the fact that government is ordained of God. You may not be able to respect everything that an employer does, especially if they're totally ungodly, if they're crooks, if they're liars, if they're thieves, on and on it goes. You can't necessarily respect the things that they do, but you can respect that position. There is a way to respond that you can deal with problems without, you know, criticizing the office. I've already talked about this before, but anyway, it goes on and he says that you do this in singleness of your heart as unto Christ. In other words, singleness of your heart means that you aren't just a man pleaser. You aren't just giving lip service. It's not just you're saying that you're doing a good job. And yes, I'm working for you, but I mean, it's you are sincere. No hypocrisy in it. It says, do it as unto the Lord, as unto Christ. I tell you, this is important. I, In the area of work, you know, I've got a good staff here. And God has really blessed me. The people that are in our ministry, we've got 30 employees who are paid, 30 who are volunteers, and they do a good job. And I mean, they they do it well, but they are all born again. We have a relationship. But I've worked in a number of places, especially when I was in the Army, and I saw the way people did things. And it just is amazing the way that they took advantage of things, the way they got out of work. I mean, it was super inefficient. And yet they got by with it because they say, well, that's the government. But you know what? You are supposed to serve your employer, whether it's the government, whether whatever it is, and you're supposed to be doing a good job in singleness of heart as unto Christ. Somebody says, but boy, my boss is a jerk. I hate to serve them like that. But see, you shouldn't look at it that way. You ought to see that you're serving Christ. See, the next verse is right here. It says, not with eye service as man pleasers, but as the servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. In other words, not with eye service means don't just do good when somebody's watching you. Just don't 
you know, do what you have to to get by and accept it. But then when nobody's watching, you slough off. You have one speed for when you're by yourself and one speed for when the boss is working, I mean, watching. You know what that is? That's hypocrisy. That's thieving. That's lying. And I know I'm probably speaking to some Christians on this tape who think, well, now that's a little strict and that's wrong. But I tell you, that is not serving the Lord. We need to do our work as under the Lord. I don't care if your boss is bad. Boy, if I had time, I hadn't got time to go into this, but just, you know, real quick thing that a friend of mine had a boss who was a crook and was doing things wrong and hated him and was going to have his head, tried to get him out of there, and he had a way to respond. He had a choice here. He could have either got into strife with this guy, tried to go over his head or whatever. What he decided to do was to serve that guy, never participate in any of the crooked things, but just serve him with all of his heart. And he says, I am going to make this manager succeed. I'm going to make him the most productive manager in this entire company. I am going to bless him and become so invaluable to him that he can't get rid of me. And you know, that's exactly what he did. And because of it, this manager's whole attitude towards him changed. He began to see the success. He had an influence on his manager, positive influence. He was promoted. And as a result, because of his faithfulness in a situation like that, God opened up another opportunity. And now this man's company that he started because God just rewarded him. God blessed him. This man's company grosses $550 million a year. And I guarantee you that didn't happen accidentally. It happened because he had a purpose and he chose to submit himself to his employer and serve the Lord and make this man look good. Instead of responding in strife, he responded in love. And God rewarded him. See, that's what it goes on to say in verse 8. It says, Knowing that whatsoever good any man doeth, the same shall he receive of the Lord, whether he be bond or free. That's saying that, When you're working for someone, it's not what that person gives you. It's God who promotes you. Psalms chapter 75 says God exalts one and puts down another. Promotion doesn't come from the east or the west or the south. It's God that advances. You know, I have worked for people before, and even though I had a physical boss that, yes, I did try and do a good job for them, my heart motive has been that, God, I am going to do this as unto you. I'd get up in the morning and pray, God, help me to do the very best that I can. And you know, because of it, yes, the boss saw it, and yes, the boss rewarded me, but the main thing is, I believe God rewarded me. I believe God blessed me for that. I really do. I believe that God has given me promotion and blessed me. I've had favor every time I've ever worked for anyone because of that attitude. There are some Christians, probably some Christians listening to this tape, who go into your job and you look at it as a way of getting your needs met. You go in with a take attitude instead of a give attitude. Now, you may be able to survive. You may put in 30, 40 years with that company and get retirement. But I guarantee you, you will not thrive. You will not succeed and reach your full potential with an attitude like that. You need to start serving the Lord. Recognize you're doing service unto the Lord. Notice it said in verse 7, with good will doing service as unto the Lord and not unto man. You know, you shouldn't be looking at serving a man. You ought to be serving God through that person. And it says, doing the will of God from the heart in verse 6. Did you know that it's God's will for you to serve your employer as if it was Christ? 
as if, you know, it is your heavenly Father telling you to do this. Boy, everything that fits within the confines of Scripture, you ought to just do it with all of your heart. And if you do that, you would be doing the will of God. Boy, it's an amazing thing. I have people come to me all the time wanting to know God's will. You know, what has he created them for? What's the long-term goals, purposes for their life, etc.? And yet I find them sloughing off, not giving an honest day's work, taking advantage of things, taking pencils, taking things from the employer, saying they'll never miss it. You know what that is? Eye service. If they don't see it, then you can get by with it. That's thievery. That's lying. That's dishonest. That's not integrity. God's not going to promote that, and God's not going to bless that. And here they are. They aren't doing a good job. They aren't serving the Lord. They're just getting by, and yet they're concerned about finding out God's overall plan and purpose for their life. You know, I just don't understand why. I'm not saying God wouldn't do it, but I don't I don't see any reason for God to reveal his long-term plan for a person's life when they aren't even doing the daily things that we know we should be doing. If you aren't giving your employer or your position of authority over you everything you've got, doing it as unto the Lord, why in the world would God reveal to you any further revelation? You aren't even doing what you've been told to do. That's just not faithful. You know, he said if you're faithful in a few things, he'll make you ruler over much. A lot of people are thinking, oh, when I get a lot, when I get big responsibility, when God opens up the door, when I get to have my own company, then I'm going to be diligent. And yet you won't serve another man. If you can't serve another man and be a decent employee, you will never get your own company. Or if you do, you'll fail. Boy, these are some powerful scriptures here that really could have a lot more time spent on them than what I've got time to do here. Let's go on into verse 9. It talks now about the masters, slave owners. This would be equivalent to, I believe, employees, or excuse me, employers today, how they should treat their employees. In verse 9, it says, And ye masters, do the same things unto them, forbearing threatening, knowing that your master also is in heaven, neither is there respect of persons with him. So basically, he just says, Everything that was said towards the slaves also applies towards the owners, the masters, the employees, and the employers. Both have a responsibility to do what's right. An employer needs to serve their employees. Now, I know that this really cuts contrary to the normal method of management in the United States where people rule by fear and intimidation, threats of punishments, layoff, you reward with uh, um, promotions and things like that. And that's not wrong in its place. But most people rule by taking their authority and wielding it with a sword and using harsh words or punishments to criticize those who don't perform, etc., and yet the Lord taught opposite that in Matthew chapter 20. He says, if you're going to be great in the kingdom, you have to learn to be a servant of all. And, you know, I know that there's some people who may be even successful in business and in their employee situation. And they're thinking it just doesn't work that way. Man, if you were to sit there and just be kind to people and not use your authority and be harsh with people, it would never work. And you know what? I agree with that if there isn't a God. If all there was is just physical level, physical relationships, then I guarantee you what you need to do is step on everybody you can step on, fight and claw to the top and do whatever it takes because, I mean, unless you do it, it's not going to get done. Nobody else is going to promote you. you got to get in and make it happen. 
And that's kind of the attitude that most people have. But the truth is that there is a God. And the scriptures teach us that God's the one that promotes us. You do your service as unto the Lord, God will promote you. And since there is a God, then you know that when you sit there and instead of just cracking the whip, and again, I'm not advocating that any employer allow his employee to have more authority, more say-so, more direction than him. But I'm saying the attitude that we use this authority in to where we don't harshly criticize people, but you work in love and you submit yourself. You serve your employees. You bless them. They know that you are out for their good. If you would do those kind of things, because there is a God, God will reward that. And God will cause those people to respond. And you'll start seeing results. You'll see God actually get involved in the situation and God start turning things around. That's what he's telling the employers here. He says that we need to also remember that we have a master in heaven. In other words, you may be the top of the ladder in your company. You may be able to have this attitude that, hey, nobody can tell me. I'm the boss. I can do whatever I want to. That's really not right. Because I promise you, even if you don't have a board that's going to crack the whip over you, or investors, or anybody who's going to hold you accountable, you do have a Heavenly Father that takes record of all kinds of things. And I guarantee you, you do have someone to answer to. This thing of nobody can tell me what to do is totally wrong. God can tell anybody what to do. He is our He is the authority of every single person. And we need to keep this in mind. You know, if we recognize that we were going to be judged in the same way that we judge others, then I think it would make our judgment a little more merciful. That's what it says in Matthew chapter 7. And this is what he's instructing masters, or we could say employers today. And he puts on the end of this phrase, he says, neither is their respective persons with him. In other words, that's basically saying God's not impressed with you being the CEO of a multi-million dollar company. Uh, God isn't going to have any more mercy on you than he's going to have over the person who has one or two employees and is struggling to make ends meet. Uh, When it comes to God, you aren't going to impress him. He's not going to give you any slack because of who you are. He knows who you are, and uh, he knows better than you do. There is no respect of persons with him. In verse 10, he says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. And beginning in verse 10, he moves on into some things here that we typically talk about spiritual warfare here and about the armor, prayer, standing against the wiles of the devil and things like this. And so he's now left the marriage relationship. He's he's left the children obeying the parents, the parents instructing the children's, the employer-employee or slave and master relationship. And now he's moving on to final encouragement, and a lot of it has to do with spiritual warfare, fighting against the spiritual powers that are behind things. And so he tells us to be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. And man, I could preach for days or weeks on this. There's a powerful lesson here that most people are trying to be strong in themselves. They're trying to use willpower and fight and resist and do everything they can and ask God to make up the difference. That is not the way that the Christian life goes. I mean, the Christian life is not being strong in yourself. It's learning how to be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Actually, we need to get to where we have less and less confidence in the flesh, in our own ability, to where we don't rely on ourselves. But when situations come up, like in work and different things, our first reaction is, Oh, God, I can't handle this on my own. 
But, Father, I believe that through you I can do all things. God, I'm drawing on your power. Let your might flow through me. And you look to God for strength, for wisdom, for inspiration. You approach things from that standpoint, and I guarantee you, you'll begin to start seeing different results. That's a totally different attitude than the person who says, man, I can do it all. I'm a Christian. God's in me. I'm going to do anything I want. And you go out there and you do it in your own might without having this humility and submission and dependence upon God. And I guarantee you, you may succeed for a while, but you will get your feathers plucked. It won't last too long. In verse 12, here's the reason why you can't do it in your own might. Again, if all we were talking about is physical relationships, human ability, and if that's all we were struggling with, well then, yes, some people who do have strong wills, strong personalities, who are well-educated and know what they're doing and have a lot of experience, you might be able to succeed. But the truth is, in verse 12, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. The truth is we aren't just fighting a physical battle. When you're having problems, employee, employer, husband and wife, parent and child, other things, it's not just natural. It's not just human. It's not just a physical struggle. Satan is coming against us. It's subtle. Most people don't see it and recognize it. And we write it off to natural problems and natural explanations for things. But the truth is there is a spiritual battle going on. When people get upset at you and things happen, it's not just normal. There is a demonic power at work there. And since we aren't fighting just human enemies, we're fighting spiritual enemies, you cannot overcome spiritual enemies with physical weapons. You have to be dependent upon spiritual power, spiritual ability. That's the reason that you need to be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might, because you cannot overcome the devil in your own human strength. You have to be God-dependent. I skipped a verse here that really does add a lot to it. But, you know, that was good, the way that uh, I did it. Uh, the point that I made, the reason you have to be strong in the power of his might is because you aren't wrestling against flesh and blood. But let's go back to verse 11. It says in between that, it says, Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. It's the same point. The reason you have to be strong in the Lord is because... You are fighting against the wiles of the devil. Notice here it says that you fight against the wiles of the devil. The word wiles here means lies, trickery, deception, deceit. Satan doesn't have power to just overcome us. He can't steamroll us. He can't just make a frontal attack and force you to do anything. Satan's real strength lies in his ability to deceive. Deception is his weapon. And the reason for that is because we're the ones with all power and authority. Satan has been stripped. But Satan's power is to deceive. He is cunning and he's crafty and he deceives us. And then he gets us through our choices to ruin our own lives, to yield ourselves unto him, to let his power flow through us instead of the power of God. He gets us into trusting in ourself instead of trusting in God. And this is very important here. Some people teach spiritual warfare to the degree that they actually make people afraid of Satan and of his power. Satan does have power, but it's all power that we give him. His real stronghold is deception. And if you don't yield to his deception, if you know the truth, the truth shall make you free. 
in John chapter 8, verse 32. The truth doesn't make you free by itself, but the truth that you know makes you free. You have to know it. If you would submit yourself to the truth and take away that deception of the devil, you've taken away his biggest weapon. He cannot overcome you. I tell you, I'm running out of time on this tape. There is so much good stuff here, I'm just going to have to hurry through. But notice it says in verse 12 that we wrestle against not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. I believe that this is showing that there are ranks, different levels of authority in the demonic realm. I know that in Daniel chapter 9 and chapter 10, we see Satan fighting against Daniel's prayer. And in chapter 10, there were different classes, different levels of angels. Michael, the archangel, had to come help Gabriel to break through in that 10th chapter of the book of Daniel. So there's different levels of godly angels. I believe that this is, is showing us that there's different levels of powers of demonic angels. But just let me put this in, that there is no angel, no demonic angel or the devil himself that won't flee at the name of Jesus and faith in the name of Jesus. That's sufficient. There is nothing that we can't handle. You don't have to amass extra help if you just really operate in faith. But you do need to recognize that the battle is not against people. It's against the spiritual powers behind them. In verse 13, it says, Wherefore, or because of this, take unto you the whole armor of God. In other words, don't just take little bits and pieces. We need to be fully outfitted. You know, my sister one time, the Lord showed her that she was born again when she was a child, but she had never grown in the Lord and really learned the things of God. And the Lord showed her one time, it's just like she was out there trying to fight a battle with the helmet of salvation on, and the rest of her just totally stripped naked. No sword, no breastplate, nothing to protect herself, no shield of faith, nothing. And, you know, I, I really believe that that is descriptive of a lot of Christians, that they haven't taken unto them the whole armor of God. And it begins to list this armor right here. As we go through it, you need to recognize that there isn't any armor for the back. If you turn and run from the devil, you're unprotected. If you stand and hold your ground and use what God has given us, it, our armor and our offensive weapons are more than enough for anything the devil throws at us. But if you turn tail and run, you're unprotected. So it says in verse 13, take unto you the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Verse 14, stand therefore having your loins girt about with truth. And of course the scripture says in John 17:17 17, 17, that the word of God is truth. And so I believe that this is talking about the Word of God. You need to have your loins, that's talking about your waist, covered with the Word of God. And and it goes on up, you know, a true loins girded the way that they wore those things. It came up even over the heart area. I mean, in other words, it's basically your vital organs, your lungs, your heart, you know, around in here. It's talking about you need to protect those with the Word of God. It says in the latter part of that, and having on the breastplate of righteousness. I tell you, this is a shame that I don't have time to go into more detail. I just encourage you to look at our footnotes to really study this here. But righteousness, understanding our right position with the Lord is vital. Now, it covers all of the vital areas, everything in the chest area. I mean, is completely covered by the righteousness. Righteousness is one of the greatest 
Understanding your righteous position with the Lord is one of the greatest defenses you will ever have against the onslaught of the devil. And I may not always use that terminology, but I constantly am talking about our righteous position, God's unconditional love for us, etc. And these things are the things that really keep your heart and everything functioning and protect them against all of the things that the devil wants to throw at you. Verse 15, in your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. I have a tape on this entitled The Gospel of Peace. This is much more than just talking about, you know, uh, the fact that God loves us. It's talking about the way of appropriating that love, how to relate to God, grace. I encourage you to get that tape on The Gospel of Peace. This is really a powerful teaching that I just don't have time to into in verse 16 it says above all taking the shield of faith wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked you know i've heard people talk about before you know describe somebody standing there with just all of these darts stuck in them you know from the enemy just completely like a pin cushion well i believe that that's descriptive of so many people faith is the thing that quenches the fiery darts of the wicked one which is talking about the devil. We have criticized faith. There's been abuses of it. There's kind of a backlash right now, people talking about how, you know, the faith movement, and many people are critical of it and on and on. But I tell you what, faith is vital to every Christian's life. And there's a lot of things that, man, we've got knowledge and we know the right things to do, but we just haven't taken that step beyond knowledge and pushed into where it's an active faith. And I mean, we are convinced, we know that we know that we know, and we're standing there. If you don't have that, I guarantee you, you are going to take some darts. You need to recognize, praise God, that the shield of faith can quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. Verse 17, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. You know, your most vital organ is your head, your brain. And the Word of God, I mean, uh, salvation is the thing that covers that. It'll get you saved. But boy, there's much more than just being born again. You need the rest of you outfitted. And the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. God's Word is a two-edged sword, is what it says over in the book of Revelation and also in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. The Word of God is our offensive weapon. It's the only offensive weapon that we have. Everything else is defensive for protection. But the Word of God is an offensive weapon. Jesus responded to the devil by saying, It is written, and he used the Word of God to destroy the devil and to drive him off. Boy, if you want to work, if you want to see Satan flee, if you want to set other people free, you must get hold of the Word of God. That's the reason this Life for Today tape, our whole series, we're teaching the Word of God. God's Word is where it's at. It's your weapon that is going to drive Satan out of your life. Verse 18, it says, Praying always with all prayer and supplication. I've heard Kenneth Hagin before say that this means all kinds of prayer. And I agree with that. There are different types of prayer, such as a prayer of petition, a prayer of praise, a prayer of thanksgiving, a prayer of supplication, a prayer of agreement, and on and on. I've got a whole series on the subject of prayer that will go into that. But see, this is part of this spiritual weapon. It's part of your defense. It's part of your armor. It's prayer, relationship with God. You pray with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit. I believe that this is talking about in tongues and in the Spirit. You can pray in the Spirit without speaking in tongues, but you can't speak in tongues without being in the Spirit. It's an important part of it. And watching there and too, in prayer, it's talking about with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. 
and for me that utterance may be given unto me that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel. You know, Paul was the boldest guy that probably ever walked the face of the earth, and here he is asking for prayer that he could be bold. I tell you, a person, a person who is really seeking the Lord, you can't ever seek the Lord too much. It's, you can't ever be bold enough. There's always more, and Paul here is making that very clear, asking for prayer that he would be bold to speak the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in bonds, that therein I may speak boldly as I ought to speak, but that ye may also know my affairs and how I do. Tychicus, a beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, shall make known unto you all things whom I have sent unto you for the same purpose, that ye might know our affairs, that he might comfort your hearts. Peace be to the brethren in love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all them that love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. Amen. So we end with uh, Ephesians chapter 6 right there. We will go on our next tape into Philippians chapter 1. And once again, i just like to encourage you that there was a lot of material there in the last 15 verses that I went through quickly. I encourage you to look at those footnotes and study it. There's some powerful things there. We hope that your heart has been quickened by hearing the Word of God through this message. Remember, Andrew Womack Ministries operates a helpline that you can call for prayer and information at 719-635-1111. We have a ministry website at www.awmi.net and you can write the ministry at P.O. Box 3333, Colorado Springs 80934. Until next time, we pray that you will reach out by faith and receive everything that is yours through God's grace.